I think this is gonna pair well with what you've just gone through looking at Genesis, specifically the Abrahamic covenant, um, because the passage that we're gonna go through, not today specifically, but in the upcoming weeks, is going to be looking at our new covenant ministry, uh, the new covenant. And so what my goal is, as I said, as long as everything goes according to plan and the Lord's will, we're gonna start off in 2 Corinthians chapter 2. We're gonna be in verse 14, and the goal is, it's a big goal, is to work all the way through chapter three. So in four sermons in the next four weeks, my goal is to cover uh, 2 Corinthians, the end of chapter two, and 2 Corinthians chapter three. We'll see how it goes. But if you wanna go ahead, I have a handout that you see there on your, on your table, but if you would open with me to 2 Corinthians chapter two, I'm gonna read verses 14 through 16, and then I'm gonna pray. So 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 14. The word of God says, But thanks be to God, who always leads us in triumph in Christ, and manifests, manifests through us the sweet aroma of the knowledge of him in every place. For we are a fragrance of Christ to God among those who are being saved, and among those who are perishing. To the one, an aroma from death to death. To the other, an aroma from life to life. Let's pray. Father, we thank you as we've heard this morning, as Carrie just reminded us in prayer that we do have a great savior. Lord, that you have sent your son to be the propitiation for our sins, Lord. Not that we deserved it, not that your love was spurred by anything that we could have done, but because of your eternal love, Lord, from before the stars were made, before the, the grass was created, before the, the greatest mountain or the deepest ocean was formed, Lord, you loved us and we thank you and we praise you for that, Lord. Would it stir us up to love you and love others? But Lord, as we come now to 2 Corinthians chapter two, we see not only is Christ the Lamb of God who was laid down to be the propitiation for our sins, but he is the conquering king. He is the one who leads us in triumph. Oh God, I pray that you would help us to see the beauty of the gospel, to see the beauty of our ministry and the new covenant, and that, Lord, we would be changed by your word. It's in Christ's name I pray. Amen. Championship. Parades are a staple, a fabric of American culture. In 2016, the Major League Baseball team, the Chicago Cubs, celebrated a victory parade in which there was an estimated five million people that showed up there in Chicago to, to root on their hometown team. And of course, for Cubs fans, that's a big deal, right? Because after 108 years of pent-up frustration and anger over many defeats, they were able to finally have glory. The Illinois governor declared the day as a statewide world champion Cubs day. Schools were closed down, red and blue confetti sprayed throughout the year. The, the city even dyed the Chicago River a deep blue, matching the championship team's colors. Uh, masses of people just... Um, permeated throughout the streets. The, 
Um, you could see them lined up for miles, creating a, a sea of blue, if you would, just to catch a glimpse of their heroes. People were seeing crawling up trees, up on light poles, just in a, a, an attempt to get a glance, to get just a, a better glimpse of their heroes. You saw babies decked in Cubs gears. You saw little kids on dad's shoulders, all next to you know, elderly men who were decked out in Cubs gear because they were cheering on the team that was once known as the lovable losers. Everywhere one turned, everywhere where one looked, there were chants of, of go, uh, go Cubs go, All right? It was echoing throughout the air. There was a sweet euphoria as their team, as they were celebrating their team in victory. As one newspaper station reported, they said, quote, for days, for days, uh, Cubs mania had spread throughout the city and state. It's a joy, right? The joy of championship victory, of victory in our teams. From World Series to the Super Bowls to NBA championships to small town Texas teams, we love to celebrate triumph. We love to celebrate victory. Well, as we turn our attention to the passage at hand that we're studying today, Paul informs us that believers enjoy the privilege of being in a triumphant procession that is far grander and far greater than any other victory parade known to man, rather from ancient times or today. We see here that we have the privilege privilege of joining in Christ's ultimate parade of triumph. And this privilege, believer, should cause you to abound in thanksgiving, even in the face of trial and suffering. As we begin this series, it's important that we lay the contextual landscape of the book of 2 Corinthians. There is a historical circumstance that was going behind this that caused the writing of this book. If you could summarize the book of Romans as uh, Paul's, excuse me, if the book of Romans could be best summarized as revealing his theology, the book of 2 Corinthians best reveals the pastoral heart of Paul. In fact, as my professor in seminary used to call both 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians, he called these the, the true pastoral epistles of the New Testament. You're like, oh, but Wes, I know first. Timothy and 2 Timothy and Titus are the pastoral letters. That's what, you know, we know those by. But he argues, and I agree with him, if you really want to see Paul shepherding a church, if you really want to see what it looks like to, to truly love and lead difficult people, if you want to know how to minister through the internal suffering and the affliction of church life, we've got nowhere farther we need to look than the Corinthian letters. It's in these letters that Paul is at his finest, integrating both theo uh, of integrating his theology with practical application. A theme of the book of 2 Corinthians you're probably aware of. If not, it is the defense of apostleship. The defense of apostleship. Paul, in this letter, is defending his apostleship unlike any other place in the New Testament. Now, when we say that, defending his apostleship, what we don't mean by that is, is Paul's not defending himself for himself. He's not the goal here. Rather, he is writing to build the church up, 
not to make his status known, not to become some pop star, superstar Christian preacher within the minds of the Corinthians, but rather to build the church up. That he needed to give them a thorough defense for their edification. You can see that in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 19, and chapter 13, verse 10, where Paul shows that the reason why he's writing, the reason why he's defending himself is to build you up, believer. That's what he says there in those verses. Now, the question obviously comes is why? Why does he have to defend his life and ministry? Why does he have to do this so forcefully? Why does he have to do it so heatedly? Why is there this dire need for him to defend himself in this way? Oh, what we can gather from the evidence is that there seems that a mutiny has erupted in the Corinthian church. That while Paul was staying in Ephesus during his third missionary journey, in which he received a group of people, he received a letter that informed him of some troubling news within the church of Corinth. We see that Paul wrote the letter of 1 Corinthians. He sent it back in, uh, with Timothy, and Timothy returned, and he delivered it to the church. And so Paul was like, okay, maybe that's going to diffuse everything. Maybe everything's going to be okay now. Well, it wasn't. <laughs> Things actually really started to explode when Timothy returned back after giving the letter of 1 Corinthians. Timothy returned. He informed Paul of some alarming news. He says, Paul, there's this group of false apostles, as Paul deemed them, that this group of false apostles had showed up in the church in Corinth. And they began teaching what Paul calls in chapters 10 through 13, a different Jesus, a different spirit, and a different gospel. And in order to, to gain sway among the people with their heretical message, they attacked the Apostle Paul's conduct and ministry. They said things like, oh, don't, don't, don't follow that guy, Paul. Don't follow him. He's walking in the flesh. They said, oh, Paul, he, he's double-minded. Paul, he's, he's of no impressive physical appearance. He's got no rhetorical flair. This guy, he's just boring. He's just all about God's word. And worst of all, in fact, the main point that Paul's going to defend himself against is that they attacked Paul for his suffering. They said, that guy, he is suffering. He is weak. He is afflicted. Therefore, he cannot be spirit-empowered. Therefore, he cannot have a legitimate ministry of the gospel because no legitimate ministry of the gospel suffers and is weak like Paul was. They argued that these were sure signs of Paul's inferiority as an apostle and the worthlessness of his message. So Paul, right, hearing of this disastrous news, he races quickly away from his ministry in Ephesus to go find out what's going on. And while we don't know the exact details of what happens, we see in 1 Corinthians chapters 1 and 2 that a painful visit has occurred. Paul's heart was broken as he saw what was happening. And instead of coming back to find a church that had his back against these false teachers, his very children of the faith had turned their backs on Paul. And so you can imagine Paul's pain, his, his sorrow, his, his grief. And so at this dark night of his soul, Paul returns to Ephesus and writes what he calls his severe letter. With a full weight of apostolic authority, Paul wrote condemning what had happened there in the church, pleading with them 
telling them to repent and turn back to the true gospel and to the true minister of the gospel. And what we discover here in 2 Corinthians is that God, in his infinite grace, used this now lost letter to produce godly sorrow within the Corinthians' heart. That he used this letter then to lead them to repentance so that even the ringleader, it would seem, in 2 Corinthians chapter 2, had turned away from his sin. But not all was sunshine and rainbows. In fact, we see that there still remained a minority that was still causing division within the church. And so Paul then, with all of this, with all of this drama going around, pins the letter of 2 Corinthians. In one sense, to rejoice that the church has repented and turned back to him. But in another sense, to call the rest of the church, the rest of the minority, to repent, to turn from these false teachers and to be built back up to unity together. So that is the purpose, the historical context then behind 2 Corinthians. If we have an outline, as I showed you on your handout, that's just where are we at, what's going on here. In chapters one through seven, Paul is going to build the church up by defending himself. And so in chapters one through seven, he defends his conduct, both in his life and in his ministry. In chapters eight through nine, he defends his collection for the saints there in Jerusalem. And in chapters 10 through 13, his most heated apologetic, he defends his apostolic credentials. And so it's in this first section that we're gonna study the conduct, the defense of his conduct in life and ministry. As we look through there, as also showed on your outline, there's three subsections. He begins off with just a general defense. Hey, my life was lived out before you, church, in holiness and godly sincerity. And then he defends his travel plans. They were all, seemed like they were attacking his faithfulness. That Paul wasn't being faithful to his word. He was double-minded. He was going back and forth, wishy-washy. If you could say, Paul says, no, I'm faithful. I'm faithful to God's word. They attacked his love, his care for the church. Paul says, no. I care for you, Corinthians. And so with that then, we come to 2 Corinthians chapter two and verse 12. As Tom likes to speak of, these are hinge verses. Uh, they point us backward to Paul defending his care, his love, his faithfulness to the Corinthian church, and they also point us forward to Paul now answering a charge in regards to his ministry. Paul must now deal with the dilemma of the critique concerning his suffering and ministry, which brings us to 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 14. We see from this point onward, through the rest of chapter 7, Paul defends his ministry. His suffering does not disqualify him for ministry, but it actually qualifies him for ministry. While his opponents claim superiority in their ministry, Paul says, no, I will show you what true, authentic ministry looks like. So as we go about this, you know, studying, just starting here in verse two, working our way as far as we can, how do we think about Paul's defense of his ministry? This is personal, this is Paul's personal defense, but how can we apply it? How can we think of it in our terms 2,000 years later? I think it can be helpful to think of what Paul's doing here as weaving together for us a beautiful tapestry of authentic new covenant ministry. Like a, a master weaver weaving together an intricate masterpiece, Paul weaves together for all believers here a glorious, a beautiful tapestry of what ministry in the new covenant 
looks like. As one commentator writes, quote, the section from 2.14 through chapter seven exudes in a theological richness and depth of reflection on the nature of Christian ministry unparalleled in the New Testament, close quote. Christian, as you read Paul's defense here, as we work through these verses for the next several weeks, Paul wants us to gaze, to gaze upon the beauty of new covenant ministry, to, to glean and to take from what Paul's ministry looks like so that we too can reflect faithfulness, authentic new covenant ministry. So you've seen there on your handout then that I've titled this series, A Tapestry of Authentic New Covenant Ministry. Within Paul's defense, within this tapestry, he weaves together a number of patterns that form for us a grander whole. And so today we're looking at the first pattern of authentic new covenant ministry. New covenant ministry, authentic new covenant ministry abounds in triumph. Abounds in triumph. That's what we get from chapter, excuse me, in verse 14 through verse 16. If we can concisely summarize what these few verses are teaching us, what we could say is that in these verses, we learn that Christians can give thanks. Christians can give thanks knowing that our sovereign God uses the suffering and faithful ministry of our lives to spread the knowledge of Christ to all the world as we are led in his triumphant procession. Christian, you can give thanks that God is using your suffering, God is using your life, God is using your ministry to spread Christ's aroma as you are being led in his procession. We can give thanks, Omega. We can give thanks that our Christian life is ministry is not one of defeat, but one of triumph as we function as the aroma of Christ. Of course, that brings up what do we mean by triumph? What does it mean that we are led in triumph? What exactly are we to give thanks for? So Paul says, drawing on the metaphor of a Roman triumphal parade, Paul showcases two grand privileges. Two grand privileges we see here in this text for which you can give thanks to God for today. Let's look at the first privilege. That first grand privilege is this, that you can give thanks to God for your privileged position. Your privileged position. Look at verse 14. He says, but thanks be to God who always leads us in triumph in Christ and manifests through us the sweet aroma of the knowledge of him in every place. The word there for, uh, excuse me, the word but is not a, a, a frivolous word. It's not a word that we should dismiss easily or overlook. In fact, it denotes a, a major discourse. It's a, a significant shift in Paul's thinking in his argument. We see that Paul is going to leave what he has been working through so far in verses, uh, verse 13. And he's gonna pick it up again in verse five of chapter seven. So from chapter two, verse 14 through chapter seven, we here have a shift of what Paul's saying. How do we make sense of that? Well, some in the past, liberals have tried to attack the integrity of the letter. They said, ah, this is just a different letter that has been sewn and stitched together to make up uh, a bigger letter. And so some 
see rather from two to even five different letters within 2 Corinthians. But as we're going to see, that is both inaccurate and unwarranted. In the context of what Paul has just said in uh, verses 2 through 13, we see that verse 14 is a natural flow from what he's just mentioned. Look at verse 12. He says, Now when I came to Troas for the gospel of Christ, and when a door was opened for me in the Lord, I had no rest for my spirit. Paul had come to Troas. He had intentionally told Titus that he was going to meet him in Troas. And we know from Acts chapter 19 that there was also a riot in Ephesus that kind of forced Paul out the door a little bit earlier. So here comes Paul. He's in Troas. He's looking for Titus, trying to find uh, Titus, because Titus has just delivered this severe letter, and, and uh, as Paul gets to Troas, he sees there's an open door for ministry. I mean, it is just fertile soil. He is preaching the gospel, it would seem, and that there are people being saved. And this is what Paul's prayed for, right? This is what Paul's dreamed of, fertile soil for me to preach the gospel. There's an open door for ministry. And yet in that time, Paul's heart is just wrestling within them. He has no rest. He has no Uh, peace within him. He is anxious. He is fighting within himself an inner turmoil because he's worried. He's thinking about the Corinthians. What's going on? How's Titus doing there? How how did my letter, how did they receive my letter? Did they repent? Did they turn from those false teachers? What's going on? And so we can see Paul's heart, his inner struggle. He had no rest. In fact, if you were to look at 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 28, Paul actually informs us that we know that, that famous passage, right, where he goes through, I've been shipwrecked, I've been beat three times, I got stoned, this, that, and the other. He comes to the end of the list. He says, but here's my greatest affliction. Here's my greatest suffering. It's my internal anxiety and care for the church. That was his greatest struggle. And so what we see here then is Paul is essentially saying that that this was his greatest suffering, that this was his greatest affliction, that he cared and he loved the church. And when the church wasn't doing well, Paul wasn't doing well, even though he had an open door of ministry in front of him. Of course, which makes us ask the question, you know, do, do we love the church like Paul loved the church? Do we care for the church like Paul cared for the church. And so then Paul says, I had to leave. Verse 13, he says, not finding Titus, my brother there, I had to take leave of them. As he waited, as he waited for, Troas, uh, for Titus and Troas, as, as the days turned to weeks, as the weeks felt like eternity, Paul says, I just can't do it no more. He had to formally, uh, formally bid the believers in Troas goodbye. And we see in verse 14, in the mind, in light of that suffering, in light of that affliction, in light of what's going on in verses 12 through 13, we get this statement in verse 14 that's really shocking to our system. He says, but thanks be to God. I mean, how can Paul say thanks be to God in the midst of his greatest affliction as a minister of the gospel? What Paul is going to show us is that instead of his critics using this as ammunition against him, saying, see, Paul, you're suffering, your affliction, you're leaving there, Troas, that wonderful opportunity. Yeah, Paul, that's just a sign of your weakness. That's a sign of your disqualification. Paul's going to say, hey, this is actually ammunition. 
to demonstrate the authenticity of my ministry. Weak, I may be, yes. Inferior, no. Earthen vessel beset by suffering, yes. Unqualified minister of the gospel, no. Why? Because we see here that Paul has a privileged position. As one commentator notes, quote, Paul is not just some guy wandering around lost and anxious in the Mediterranean, close quote. In actuality, Paul is showing, hey, I'm actually being led in triumph. Yes, I may be suffering. Yes, there may be affliction, but God is sovereign and he is leading me in triumph. Therefore, he says in verse 14, but thanks be to God who always leads us in triumph in Christ. Scholars and historians, they paint for us, they tell us the Roman triumph parade had, quote, um, had perhaps become the most important and well-known political religious institution of Roman civilization. In a sense, it was a lavish celebration of Rome's cultural brilliance and political and imperial supremacy. The whole procession was extensively elaborate. Many of the triumphs were known to go for more than a day. And you can picture it, right? As a, in our civilization, in our culture, as a victory championship parade, as people were flocking down the streets of Rome, gazing, just wanting to, to get a look at the victors coming in from battle. Starting this parade, starting this procession, were the spoils of war. They would showcase their weapons and their gold and their silver and their jewelry. They were pictures of battle scenes that were won, of towns that were conquered, of placards with names of now subjected people in cities prostrated up as billboards. Following these spoils of war then were the trumpeters who would blast forth this noise of Roman triumph all over the streets. Next came the incense bearers, those whose aromatic fragrances carried a sweet perfume drifting out over the spectators. After that came chained prisoners of war who were led along in utter humiliation. Some, actually most of whom, would be sold into slavery, but some, the the most important political leaders, the most important um, people were then executed at really the, the height of the parade. Followed this was followed by them were the Roman magistrates and the Senate. And at the center of the parade was the Roman general, or sometimes the Caesar, whoever it might be. And they function as the victor, as it was called, as the savior, as they were called. He was the, the focal point. He rode on this stately chariot pulled by four horses or even elephants, as some historians tell us. He was ornately dressed. He had a purple toga on with a tunic that was stitched with golden palms. And he had a crown that stood upon his head that adorned him with glory. His face was painted red, and he carried an eagle crown scepter in one hand all symbols of his glorious pomp and in honor of their gods. After the victor's chariot came emancipated Romans, those who were in slavery in these foreign lands that the victor, the savior, had freed and had set free from from bondage, that they were clothed in, excuse me, they were wearing clothing that marked their blood-bought freedom. 
And last but not least came the soldiers, uh, soldiers wearing laurel crowns upon their heads, singing a, a myriad of songs, just rejoicing in the triumph. I mean, this was the pinnacle, historians tell us. This was the zenith of Roman glory. Would you turn over real quick to Colossians? Colossians chapter 2, verse 15. Paul uses this Greek word for triumph one other time in the New Testament. And here we see not a Roman triumph, but we see heaven's glorious triumph. Look at Colossians chapter 2, verse 15. It says, When he, that is Christ, had disarmed the rulers and authorities, he made a public display of them, having triumphed over them through him. You see what Paul is showing us in Colossians chapter two that Christ is the true victor. Christ is the true savior. Christ has disarmed heavens, the cosmic powers of the the evil forces of this world, has disarmed Satan's army and he is now leading them as a public spectacle for the glory of God, showcasing his victory and their shame. And in a sense then, we can see from other places like Colossians chapter one, where it says that Christ has rescued us from the domain of darkness and has transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son, that it would seem then almost in Colossians chapter two, that we see a a train following the Lord Jesus Christ of emancipated Christians that are wearing the blood-bought clothing of Christ, that we have been freed from our slavery to sin, our slavery to death, our slavery to Satan, and we are following the true Savior in triumph and glory and beauty. And so we can see here then this triumphant procession, right? Christ Jesus is not just the Lamb of God who who died upon the cross in propitiation for his sins. Yes, he is that, but we see that he is also the victor. We see that he is also the Savior. We see he is also heaven's champion. And so we can see heaven's gates opened up. We can see the courts of heaven, the myriads of angels welcoming in the Lord Jesus Christ in his triumphant parade. We can see them saying, worthy, worthy are you, Lord Jesus Christ, for you came, you saved, and you receive the glory. Christ has the crown upon his head, leading his spoils and war, a host of defeated enemies, a host of liberated prisoners from Satan's domain. This is the triumph of the gospel. This is the parade that we as believers will one day in a sense, be in, right? Will he triumph in Christ no matter our suffering and afflictions here on this earth? Turn back over in 2 Corinthians chapter two. And so is this picture then that Paul's trying to paint for us in this metaphor? And note that word always, that God always leads us in triumph in Christ, right? Highlight that, circle that word, underline that word, that God always leads us in triumph in Christ. Even when the church is struggling, even when ministry seems to be fumbling, even when your anxiety over your family or work decisions and uncertainty are causing you 
to just have inner restlessness, eating away at your peace, right? Paul says we can always give thanks because God is always leading us in triumph in Christ. But the question is, what does it mean that Christ is leading us in triumph? I painted for the picture in Colossians chapter 2. I think it is right that we can see ourselves as liberated captives there in chapter 2, being led in Christ's glory. But in 2 Corinthians chapter 2, I think Paul is painting a different picture here. He is showing us a different role, a different position that we have in this parade. There's three major interpretations of what it means to be led in triumph by Christ. First, some as such as John Calvin in the King James Bible, if you see, if you have a King James Bible out. It takes this verse in causal sense, that Christ causes us to triumph. In other words, that we're the soldiers, we're with Christ in the chariot, that we're the ones basking in triumph because we're the ones that triumph in Christ. Now we have the privileged position of being triumphant. The problem with this is that this has no attestation outside of um, scripture or in the Greek language for this causal sense of the verb. In fact, as many many have noted, in fact, Calvin himself admitted uh, to changing the nuance of this verb to just fit his theological understanding. He couldn't understand what was going on here in a sense, and so he says, well, we are the ones who have been caused to triumph in Christ. The problem with that is that it takes the position of Christ himself. Christ is the one who triumphs. We are led in his triumph. We join with him in triumph. So we're not to be pictured as the soldiers. We're not to be pictured as in the chariot with Christ. Rather, there's a different picture going on here. So that brings us into option number two, which is by far the majority position today in um, the church. It's argued that based on the, the Greek usage of this verb and the Pauline theme of suffering, that Paul says here in 2 Corinthians that we are the defeated enemies. We're the defeated enemies that have now been captured by Christ and are paraded along by Christ. In other words, God in Christ is now glorifying his might and prowess over the man who used to be one of his most hated human enemies, Saul of Tarsus. That the man who used to persecute God's people was now God's conquered enemy. He is now Christ's conquered slave being led in a procession to his death. And everywhere he goes, as a conquered slave, Paul now spreads the aroma of Christ through his death through his suffering, just as a sacrificial offering, they would say in verse 15, spreads a pleasing aroma to the Lord. Those who saw Paul's uh, Paul's sufferings and rejoiced, they were those who were being led to life. But those who saw Paul's sufferings like the Corinthian opponents and rejected Paul, to them Paul was an aroma of death. And it does make good sense. In fact, it's very convincing and it's hard to go in a different direction, but I think that there is a more plausible option. In fact, I think there's several reasons why we should not see ourselves being led in this procession as conquered, uh, captured enemies, but rather we should see ourselves as the incense bearers led along in Christ's triumph. Yes, our sufferings are to be the means which God uses to spread the aroma of Christ in the world, but not as 
captured enemies, but rather as the incense bearers. The reasons for that, first, as one commentator quips, is the theological indigestion of the passage. Right? It's, it's one thing for Paul to say that he was God's enemy, but now he's been reconciled to Christ, set free, and now he is a willing slave who follows Christ. That's, a, that's what Paul says throughout the New Testament. He is a slave of Christ. It's one thing to paint that picture, and it's another thing to say that, no, Paul is still an enemy of Christ, still suffering as a slave of Christ. Because then Paul then would be paralleling himself to what we see in Colossians 2, to those evil forces that are being paraded by Christ before him. So I don't think the theolo- theologically, I don't think this fits here. But second is also the meaning of the Greek verb itself. The, the whole argument for seeing ourselves as captured slaves is all based upon one argument. And that is that this Greek verb always points to captured enemies. They claim that to be led in triumph always appears to be a conquered prisoner. But as George Guthrie points out in his commentary, that this is a gross exaggeration. In fact, as we've gotten more manuscripts, more ancient literature, we've seen that this verb is used 60 times in outside manuscripts. And it's only four times that this word is used to speak of leading prisoners. In fact, in all the other instances, so you got 56 compared to four, and the other 56 instances, the word is used to lead a number of things. It could be people, or it could be animals, or it could be even spoils of war. So then with that information, that negates a main argument for seeing ourselves as captured slaves. Lastly, and what I believe is the most convincing reason is what Paul continues to go on in verse 14 and verse 15. He, he focuses, as we are led in this triumph, his focus is on the aroma, how we are being led in triumph spreads the knowledge of Christ throughout the world. And the image that Paul uses to speak of that is not of Old Testament sacrifice, but of the incense being offered within the triumphal procession. Look at verse 14. We give thanks to God who always leads us in triumph in Christ. There he says it, and manifests. That's the same word that we just saw in 1 John manifests, discloses, makes known. We could say in this context, diffuses through us the sweet aroma of the knowledge of him in every place. Paul saying that through us as God's agents, as God's channel, as, as God's incense bearers, if you were, we are diffusing, we are spreading, we are manifesting the sweet aroma of the knowledge of Christ. The word for sweet aroma, it's a neutral term. It refers to really any smell in general. It can be, in certain contexts, a a beautiful, sweet smell, as we see here in verse 14, or in some contexts, it's a repugnant, disgusting smell. And so here, as Paul's using it, as it's referring to the knowledge of Christ, that is the knowledge of Christ in the gospel, he says that we are spreading the sweet odor the very sweet odor and fragrance and aroma that the incense bearers gave off as they filled the streets in a triumphal parade. Ancient historian Apian, he writes this, quote, next came a large number of incense bearers. And just after the fragrances, the general himself on a chariot inscribed with various designs, wreathed with gold and precious stones, end quote. 
Another historian writes, quote, after them came the people taking care of the incense censers in which the aromatic herbs and, and frankincense were burned to produce fragrant smoke along the whole route, end quote. So what Paul's picturing for us then is we are the incense bearers. We are the ones going before the chariot. We are the ones going before Christ, spreading, diffusing, making known, manifesting, wafting throughout the air the knowledge of the gospel, the knowledge of Christ in the gospel. So what Paul is saying then is that no matter the place, no matter the difficulty, no matter the suffering, the affliction that he has just been through or that we might go through, Paul saying, this is my privileged position. This is why I give thanks. I don't care what it looks like from external perspective. I don't care what those guys may say about my life and my ministry. Understand this, Corinthians. We are the incense bearers of Christ being led in his triumphal procession. And we are spreading, we are spreading the knowledge of Christ. And notice what he says there at the end of verse 14. In every place. In every place. Christian, this is, by extension, your position today. Right, yeah, I know you're not Paul. I know you're not an apostle. I know that, that you are not him in this situation. But by extension, we too have a place in a triumphal procession, in Christ's parade. From Colossians chapter 2, I think we can see ourselves as those being led, emancipated by the blood of Christ. But here in 2 Corinthians chapter 2, Paul wants us to get another picture that our life, as we go about through our suffering, through our ministry, we are spreading the aroma of Christ in every place in your home, in your work, in the church, throughout the ends of the earth, you are to spread the aroma of Christ. Everywhere you go, your life, your message, your ministry should be, be before you as sweet incense, right? Pointing people to the Lord Jesus Christ. There's a man that I know fairly well who I don't even have to see him, and I know he's in the room. I mean, this guy's cologne is strong. Probably you may know of people like that, a guy, a lady, and the good news is, is it smells pretty good. So I smell it, and I'm like, all right. It's okay. But I don't even have to look. I know when he's in the room. I know when he's been in the room. Because I can walk in the room, he's not even there, and I can say, oh, so-and-so's been here today. Because I can smell. He leaves an odor. He has an aroma about him through his cologne. <laughs> in a sense, Christian, that's to be you, right? Believers, unbelievers, they should sniff you. They should smell you. They should take an aroma and say, this guy is a Christian. This guy is making known to me the knowledge of Jesus Christ in the gospel. Your life, your message, your ministry should fill their nostrils, their spiritual nostrils, if you were, with the knowledge of Christ. This is our privileged position. But what's the effect? What effect does that have upon the world? If we were to go about spreading Christ's aroma and his triumphal procession as he is showcasing his glory, what effect does that have on those around us? Well, he goes on in verse 15 through 16 to show us that effect. Look at verse 15. It says, For we are a fragrance of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. 
to the one an aroma from death to death, to the other an aroma from life to life. We all know the powerful influence that smell can have in our lives, right? You're walking down the street and you got a smell of a barbecue pit. Ah, oh, man, somebody's grilling today. It's, it's gonna be good. Or you walk into your closet and you smell your spouse's aroma coming from their clothes or maybe from the bathroom and you smell their perfume or their cologne or whatever it may be. And you're like, oh man, I miss them. Oh man, I love them. Oh man, I really wish they were here right now. Smell has a powerful effect on our lives, but it can also have a negative effect, right? You open up that milk jar and you're about to pour your cereal. You're like, whoo, this is sour milk. This is spoiled milk. And you just, you want to toss it out. Or that one time, which probably never happened to you, right? It's, you're working out, got really sweaty, put your clothes in a bag, put it in your car, and you left the bag with the smelly clothes, with the smelly shoes, in a car for a week, Texas summer heat, and then you open it up, you're like, oh, man, this is disgusting. Right? Smells can have a powerful influence in our life for good or for bad. Paul says the smell of Christ in your life has the same powerful influence. The word for picks up and expands his point from verse 14. And he shows us that our influence, our message and our ministry has three audiences. There's three audiences that he gives here of which our, our aroma has an influence over. The first is God. Verse 15 says, for we are a fragrance of Christ to God. The word fragrance is actually a different word than what he's used and what he's going to use. This word is not a neutral word for odor, but rather the connotation of this word is always, always a pleasing scent, always a pleasing aroma. Maybe there's some scents in your life, a smell in your life that you're like, oh, I love that smell. Every time I smell it, it is just so wonderful. For me, it's chocolate chip cookies. Every time my wife has a nice homemade chocolate chip cookie baking in the oven, I walk into the kitchen and I just, it's just the most beautiful thing. You probably can think of smells in your own life where, whew, man, it just smells so wonderful. Paul reveals that, that he, and by extension, you, you are that to God. You are a sweet, pleasing aroma to God. Always, Christian, always. And notice he says our fragrance is not from ourselves, but we are a fragrance of Christ. That aroma doesn't come from ourselves, but it comes from Christ. As you and I are robed in Christ garments, we then take upon ourselves Christ's aroma. And our lives then, as we go about faithfully in ministry, faithfully in life, our aroma of our life drifts up like a sweet fragrance upward to God, just like the aromas in a Roman triumph were to be offered and drift up to their gods. So as we think about that, it's just wonderful, right? That, that God delights in you, believer. That, that you are a sweet smell in his nose. Despite all your flaws, despite all your imperfections, despite how Satan may attack and tempt you to say, doesn't love you. God doesn't care about you. I know what you're going through. God has turned his back on you. Paul says, no. Look upward, Christian. You are a fragrance of Christ. 
God delights in you. You are a sweet smell to his nose. You're covered in Christ's blood. Therefore, God the Father delights in you. So knowing that our smell then carries a sweet aroma, a sweet fragrance to God, how then does it impact the world around us? Paul moves to the horizontal influence of Christ's aroma. Right, This gospel fragrance does not just drift up to God, but it also permeates throughout the world. He has two audiences in mind here. One, or excuse me, the, the second audience we see is a deathly stench. That the Christian is a deathly stench to the spiritually dead. We are a deathly stench to the spiritually dead. Mirroring what he said previously in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, if you remember that passage, Christ says that the word of the cross is what? Folly to those who are perishing, but the power of God to those who are being saved. Paul says, not only is our message foolishness to the world, but our life, our ministry, our conduct, the way we suffer, the, the fact that we don't partake of sin, the fact that we choose a life of righteousness, the fact of how we choose to shepherd our children, how we choose to do our job, uh, the way we choose to conduct our marriage, the way we choose to love Christ, that too is a, a foolishness, a, a stench to the world. In other words, you're like a skunk, right? You're like a skunk on the side of the road to an unbeliever. Your life, your message, your conduct, your ministry, believers take that in and it is rotten. It is repulsive. You are the smell of death. Why? Paul says it's because they are perishing. Why are they perishing? Well, he says in verse 16, because it is an aroma from death. They're perishing because they're spiritually dead. The source, the, the heart, their, their inner being, the inner man is dead. Therefore, when they take in your life, when they hear your message, when they see how you live your life, when they see how you suffer for Christ, your Christ-centered, gospel-driven life is death to them. Just like in the Roman triumphal parade when the incense aroma would fill the air, it would have been a reminder to those prisoners led in chains that their life was one of death. They were being led to their death. Paul says the same is true for us. They are being led to death because their spiritual noses cannot smell the beauty of Christ that we emanate. But there's another group, another group who is powerfully influenced by your life and ministry. Third, we are a life-giving aroma to the spiritually alive. We are the life-giving aroma to the spiritually alive. He says, we are also the fragrance of Christ to God among those who are being saved. To them, an aroma from life to life. This group, unlike the other, receives the smell of your life as sweet and as pleasant. All right, just as those who were liberated Romans, who had been freed by their Roman savior, as they breathed in, unlike the, the prisoners chained, heading to their death, these now are freed Romans. These now are Romans who are smelling in the incense being offered in that triumphal procession. They're saying, life, life, I have been saved. I have been set free. 
I am life. So too then your life is a sweet reminder of others who have been saved by the one true savior of their great salvation. They're attracted to you like bees are to Texas spring wildflowers. Why? Because as he says, that it is from life. Unlike the previous group who were spiritually dead, hardened, who maligned God's people, who rejected God's people, these are those who have life. God has so quickened in their heart to bring them to life. And so now as they take in your aroma, they're attracted to you. It reminds them of their life. So now when they observe your suffering, when they see how the way you live your life for Christ, how you lay down your life in the midst of suffering, it is an encouragement. It is a, a sweet reminder of their great Savior. No doubt many of you can probably think of people right here, maybe in this room, maybe outside of this room, people who you just are around them, and you're just like, man, they just live for Christ. It gives me so much hope. It gives me so much encouragement. Believer, this is your life. This is the privilege of your influence. You are the dividing line of human history. As you go forward carrying the gospel of Christ, being led in Christ's triumphal parade, you can give thanks because you are privileged to be in a position with an influence for the glory of God. But understand that that has great responsibility. You are to live your life for Christ. Don't do what some do. You have a car freshener, you put it in the car, and you smell it, oh, it smells great, but someone else calls, comes in the car and they say, oh, I can't, I can't stand this smell. And so they put it in the console and they hide it, they cover it up, right? When other believers are around you and they smell you and they're saying, oh man, don't hide it. Christ said, don't hide your light. Paul's saying here, don't cover your smell. Make it known. Live for Christ, spread his aroma, and give thanks in every circumstance. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the great privilege it is to be in your triumphal procession. Both those who have been freed, set free from slavery to sin and death, now following you as we glory in our Savior for the triumph that he has accomplished, as his freed slaves now who rejoice in him. But Lord, we also know that we have a great um, position, that we are to spread Christ's aroma. We are to spread the gospel both through our message and through our life. God, we know that this will be a powerful influence in the world, a dividing line in this world. Oh God, I pray that, that we would not cover it up. I pray that we would not hide it in the center console, if you would, Lord, but that we would be both lights set upon the city on a hill, but also the aroma of Christ, incense bearers going forth, wafting, diffusing, spreading, manifesting the great knowledge of our Savior. Oh, we love you. We thank you. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.